just to start, let me just say, you know, years ago, Marie and I and our family have been part of this church for many years. And you see a lot of things, but you remember a lot of things. And one of the things that we, it was just a value that we trust has continued on through this entire tenure that we've been a part of this church and we're trusting that we'll continue on far into the future. But th it was a, a value instilled by Ken and Michelle, carried on by Clayton, that we frequently, and we said this before, but we would pray before the service and we were trusting that, of course, somebody comes with a message as I have today and that's fine. I said, but there comes a time when man sits down and he takes the stage. And in the time of worship, I was just so delighted because I just, you could see that in the, in the midst and in the atmosphere that God was able to meet personally with his people, unfiltered, truly as he was, and you got to worship in spirit and in truth. And that's what he always has desired, which is true worshipers. And to, from, from my, where I stand now, but from my perspective, you know, we've seen that continually be fulfilled as a value of what we always hoped for would be part of this experience for people who so chose to join us. And I, and I can only say thank you, God, because it's not something that man can ever do, orchestrate. We can certainly have a value and carry that, but to see its fulfillment just with him being with his people, what else can I say? So I just wanted to start just by reiterating that thought, because it's a value. And I, yeah, I don't have all the words other than just to say thank you to him, because he is good. So, I am going to continue on from last week in a sense, and I'm just going to do a very quick recap because I will, I'm, I, I don't need to go through all of this. But last week we continued on in post Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, and to summarize, just one of the, the main points I wanted to communicate, which is something that I just, when you look into the future, you see what is possible in some sense, potentially not in a good way. And as expressed in the people, you know, the Jews, you know, entering the new covenant, the whole role of the temple in their day-to-day -day lives radically shifted from being the center of it all to being actually a place where evangelism could occur. And, and I merely pointed out that there was a radical shift from temple-centric thinking, as in this is where God is, to now... God going wherever they went because they now were the temple. And it's, it's really easy to say that it ought to be like that, it ought to look like that, it ought to be held as a value, and yet we're just human. And I mentioned that, you know, as we've done this morning and I got to experience and I got to just thank God for, we are absolutely trusting for that and beyond. Be it Whatever God wants to, however he wants to express himself in our midst, we as a leadership say, yes, Lord. And we, of course, endeavor not to in some way put God in a box because people normally just tend to do that. 
nor to interfere, nor interpose ourselves between him and his people. So we want our Sundays to be as fruitful from the perspective of what, what God desires as possible. And, but then I went from there and started talking about you and I in our daily lives, which is the six plus days a week that you're not here. And I just made the point, and I'm going to say it again. It's a huge caveat that you just please keep in mind. It's not an either-or mentality. Because in some sense, you might think that I'm talking about, in some sense, diminishing the role of our Sundays, and most certainly that's not what I'm trying to communicate. It is both and. But to emphasize you know, the role of what happens to you and your experience and what you get to, in a sense, express outside of this Sunday service in this building on this, during this time period is pretty important. And so I'm talking about that portion, and in no way do I want you to, in a sense, infer that I'm trying to diminish what we do here. It's both. It's not either or. So we're going to start in the same two verses. I'm not really going to go that far beyond. And the concepts are relatively simple. But in Acts chapter 2, I read two verses, 46 and 47. And it says, so continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those were beings who were being saved. That was our text last week. It's still our text. You might have even memorized it. But, and last week I talked about this, this particular phrase with one accord told you a little bit of history of how we've been talking about that in a sense. And one of the points I made last week about this notion of being in unity is like you actually have to work at it, right? You have to acknowledge that there are some things you have to protect against to have that. But I'm going to move on from there and talk about another aspect of what it means to be, the phrase means with one accord. And now the word accord, you might think about an accord as a treaty of some type. And the definition of that in Merriam-Webster is it's an agreement or conformity. That's no surprise. And when the, the, the New King James Version, which is the, the version that I had up there, when the, the phrase with one accord in the Amplified, it says with one, with one mind. Or you could say similarly, a singular purpose. And that is, as you know, not a trivial thing. If you've ever been in any form of management at some level, being a decision maker, you know at times you feel like with the, in, the, in the court of quote-unquote public opinion, it's as if you're herding cats. Because everybody comes with an opinion. So I, st I start here, and I'm going to, because I'm kind of intense about what seems like minutia, I'll admit to that. But I'm going to start here by just literally thinking and looking at this very notion of being of a singular purpose, because that's what with one accord means. And so if I were to start with, by asking you a question, what can a church, which is us, gather around and agree to as their purpose? It's just a question. And there are many possibilities if you start to deconstruct, well, what are my options? So let's, let's start with the easiest of options, which is what it clearly is not. I hope you agree with, with me on this. What it cannot be is rooted in man's purpose, personal ambition, or personal benefit. I hope you agree with me on that. 
Why? Well, for the obvious reasons. Anything individual will fray into as many pieces as there are people. So when the goal is singular purpose of one mind, the notion that it's about something personal, well, of course, the likelihood that you share the very same interests of self with your fellow neighbor is pretty unlikely. So that's an easy one. It's not that. So what are my other options? And this is by, I'm not trying to say this is the most complete list because then I'd literally bore you. But what is a possible answer? Well, another possible answer, it's a leader's vision. And that sounds pretty good, not quite as offensive as personal ambition, but yet equally flawed. Because if you say, well, the church is about God's singular purpose, now we as human leaders, we have our own ideas. We have our own even, I could say, personal charisma that can be just as effective at some level to gathering people around that singular vision which is rooted in man. I'm not trying to make commentary on us versus other people. I'm just saying these are options when I start to look at what does it mean with one accord which relates to a singular purpose of one mind. And of course, you know kind of the answer, well, that, yeah, I, they may actually be a reality to it, but it, we know kind of how the story ends, and you know how the story ends because when you centralize around a personal vision of a leader, well, of course, you'll see that all exposed when there's a transition in leadership. Because all of a sudden, what was gathered around the leader when he transitions in leadership, you begin to see the, at the edges begin to fray because at some level, people say like, you know, that's not what I signed up for. I like the other guy. I like what he brought to the table. This new guy, new ideas, new vision. It's not really what I'm about. So while not as offensive, it's still equally flawed. Okay. So one of the aspects, which is, if you want to just be honest about it, I refer to the honesty table a lot in my house. One of the dangers of leaders and I'm not trying to point a finger at me, by the way. Please give me some grace here. There is a danger of becoming leader-centric, as good and as gifted as leaders can be, who become, in effect, a proxy for God. Not trying to say whether that's true here or there. I'm just saying, if you think critically about it, that is a possibility which is why what happened to me this morning was just such a blessing because we don't want to be a proxy for God. There's nobody that can replace him experientially and in heart because in him there is no darkness at all. So what do we desire? Well, of course, it's God's purpose, God's purpose his prerogative, his idea, his mission. And you know that Christ is the head of the church. So I'm telling you, you could quote me the scriptures. I'm just telling you this is the construct for us as a corporate body. Now, there is a reason why I'm going through this level of minutia, by the way. But let me just start or end this part of it by saying that this church does have a mission, and I'm not here to remind and articulate all of that, but all to say that corporately, the mission of the church does have a role in this area 
the city, if you will. And classically, you could say that, you know, as for individuals and families, that there's an element that the church gives them the ability to influence in a much larger scale than they would otherwise. True. But just to say at this point that the church, in and of itself, has an opportunity to impact from a corporate perspective a broader area. And that is in the heart of God. City churches as an example. So, now why did I do this? Now I'm going to step back and tell, explain to you concepts of authority structure. For I have a very specific reason why I'm doing this. So Christ, as you know, is the head of the church. And you also know in 1 Peter chapter 5, he refers to Christ as the chief shepherd. And you have the concept of under-shepherds, which represents elders slash overseers, that do represent the chief shepherd and will give an account to the chief shepherd. But there is a chief shepherd. And most certainly, just the easy picture that Christ is the head of the church, the church is his body, well, that's saying a very similar concept. So we are familiar with that. But I'm quite interested in what happens in your home. I am intensely interested and feel some level of urgency about your home. And in your home, there also is an authority structure, which I have spoken about in the past, and I'm not going to do an extensive analysis of the same thing, but all to say that in the home, there is an authority structure. And even this is there's elements of disagreement in the culture, but I'm, not, I'm just ignoring that. I'm just saying what the Bible says, that the head of man is Christ, right? Head of man is Christ. Wives come under the head and the children under that. So it's not about debating it. I'm just merely pointing out that there is an authority structure in the home as well, each individual home. And I've said previously, I have no authority in your home. You can invite me into your home to help in some way and invite my authority in there. But as it stands, just plain vanilla concept, I literally have no authority in your home. You do. And you operate under the head, which is Christ. So, now let's get to what I ultimately wanted to talk to you about. Christ, Jesus, is the head for both the church and the home. Both, at the same time. Now, if you're very sensitive to conflicts of interest, he's like, well, you know, there's two different authority structures, and it's like different people. No, but here we talk about the same, it's God. He is the head of both the church and the head of your home. So now, if I just, now I'm just asking questions. And let me just, I'm going to ask you some questions. Not rhetorical, per se, but these are just questions. If I were to say, what should you, as an individual or family, be involved in? If you are the, in authority in your home, you get to make that choice, right? I don't get to dictate that. As one of the leaders in the church, yes, I have some influence in terms of what we are involved in as a church, but as it relates to your home, I don't have that authority. You do. Question two. Is there a conflict between your involvement in church and your involvement in home? Uh, this is kind of a fascinating, for me, it may not be too, but to me, this is an incredibly fascinating question. Because if you've had any experience in the church, you know 
that you're playing in two different spheres. And sometimes, classically, the notion would be that sometimes the lesser has to sacrifice for the greater, i.e., what you are involved in your home somehow comes subject to what goes on corporately. Is there carte blanche in terms of the church interest versus yours? Something that we have to work out. You have to work out. And here's another question. Is there a bias that emphasizes or de-emphasizes one over the other as between church and the home? I would say, just as commentary, not to answer the question per se, but as commentary, this very specific topic of church and the home is not simple. And I do believe that biases have creeped in over time such that there is one emphasize and one de-emphasize as between the two. That's just my only commentary I'll put on it. But here's a fact. Christ is head of the church. Christ is head of your home. The Lord is not conflicted. He is not. Jesus, as the head of both the church and head of the home, is not somehow in some way advising or recommending or influencing, in a sense, what the church should be involved in versus what the home be involved in, where there's conflict. It can't be true. Why? Well, you know the answer to that. A house divided cannot stand. He is the same one, the same head, operating in two different spheres, and the Lord is not conflicted. He is not. If you're like me, when I started to think about this, I'm like, uh, uh, so what does this mean? How do we go forward? Because there are demands on this. I can tell you as a leader here in the church, this leadership endeavors to hear and to adhere to God's purposes for Free Life Church as best as we can. That's what I can commit to you. And while I have no authority in the home, your home, your household, be it individual or family, all I can suggest is that you, who represent the leadership under Christ, under the head of your home, endeavor to do the same. And now it gets messy. But you have to be, in some sense, just comforted by the fact that the Lord is not conflicted. What you feel for him, as, from him as a head, to do, to be involved in, to govern in the context of your home is not in any way in conflict with the church. It can appear to be a conflict if somehow one or both parties are hearing wrong. But just take comfort that the Lord, as the head of your home and as the head of this church, what you are feeling, what we are feeling as leadership in the church, it's not in conflict. It cannot be. This is all theory. I get that. But part of the reason why I'm stepping into this theoretical idea and trying to break it down is that I am encouraging you as leaders of your home to do the best you know to hear God for the intentions, for your involvement, for your home. 
That's my encouragement to you. And some of you might feel, well, that's a lot of responsibility. Yes, it is, but it's yours, not mine. Don't abdicate leadership in your home. It's yours. As best as you know, and it's a process that I'm sure, like everybody else, like I've done it with my home, have I made mistakes? Of course I have, myriad numbers of mistakes. But it's still my responsibility. And right or wrong, sometimes you have to make decisions about what you're, what you're about. What is your purpose in the home? Just like we're doing with respect to Free Life Church. But to the degree that we're hearing correctly, there is no conflict because the Lord is head of both. He is. Now, this is what I went through that. I mean, I am kind of purposeful about this. So here's why. In verse 46 or 47 in Acts chapter 2, it says, Breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And I want to hone in. Now we're talking about day-to-day in their homes, what was characteristic of that. And this is, in a sense, one of the best expressions of what it was like in the new covenant of what home life looked like. And two words I want to just pick out, first of all. And the word gladness, the, the definition of that in the Greek is exaltation, extreme joy. And the way you can relate to it is how it was expressed in the Septuagint in Psalms as they translated into the Greek in Psalms was that it was in this, this word is found chiefly in the Psalms where it denotes joy in God's redemptive work. Extreme joy. That somehow their salvation and what was accomplished by Christ on the cross was not in any way shrouded over by their daily experience. They could see it as clearly as because it was their living experience, and there was extreme joy. The other word, which is simplicity, that word is defined as singleness, undivided. And that, to me, is a super interesting word. Why? Because when I think of believers in their homes having singleness of heart and being undivided in effect in their heart, that communicates to me that what was in their heart was heavenly, not contaminated by the world. Now it gets real. See, this is the cutting edge of your life, my life. This is the cutting edge. Because temple-centric living can tend to, the reason why I railed on it last week, temple-centric living, which is what the Jews came out from, can lead to compartmentalization of your Sunday life versus your regular life. That somehow your purposes of being here in the context of an authority structure of the church is somehow divorced from, separate from, and have potentially even very little relationship to what is in your home, which is your other life. And yet you have one life. And the ultimate leader of the head that you come into the church is the same leader that is the head in your home. No conflict. So the notion of being single-minded and being undiluted by the world, that's your cutting edge. So now I'm going to talk to you about 
See, we're in Northern Virginia. We're in the United States in Northern Virginia, Loudoun slash Fairfax County. This is not any culture. Is it singularly unique in the, all of the United States? No. But it is a unique culture. And there was a quote by Aldous Huxley who wrote the book, Brave New World Revisited. This was in 1958. And this guy, he was looking into the future. I don't think he was a Christian. But there was a prophetic edge to him because he was looking into the future. And what did he see? And this is, in a sense, what he saw as commentary on his book. He says, in regard to propaganda, the early advocates of universal literacy in a free press envisaged only two possibilities. The propaganda might be true or it might be false. They did not foresee what in fact has happened above all in our Western capitalist democracies. Development of a vast mass communications industry concerned in the main neither with the true nor the false, but with the unreal, the more or less totally irrelevant. In a word, they failed to take into account man's almost infinite appetite for distractions. 65 years ago, I cannot imagine saying it more clearly from a prophetic edge of a person, a non-Christian, of what is emblematic today. It's not fake news. That's not the issue. It's not true or false. It's real versus unreal. And if you're like me, a human being, you identify with this to the nth degree. Infinite appetite for distractions. See, a distraction is not, in a sense, evil. It's not what a distraction is. These oftentimes manifest themselves as something that has a legitimately good purpose, and yet the end result of which is to distract you from the real purpose of what you ought to, in God's mind, be involved in. So don't ever think of that it's like good or bad. It's a distraction. I should be preaching to the choir when I say, what's real then? Because I can tick off in my life a large number of potential distractions that are absolutely unreal that I invest portions of my time and yet they have no consequence and the end result of which is wasting my time. And if you're honest with yourself, like I'm trying to be honest, that will be not a great list to walk through. So the, if I were to say now, what is real? What's real? So I have a small statement from if, if anybody has read the book Case for Christ by Lee Strobel, I don't know how many years he wrote this book, but it was a while ago. And he went through a number of evidences for Christ. He was building a literal case as, in a sense, an investigative journalist of the reality of Christ, looking at historical records, context, you know, in the political realm, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And in the end, this is what he says. He says... It's the ongoing encounter with the resurrected Christ that happens all over the world, in every culture, to people from all kinds of backgrounds and personalities, well-educated and not, rich and poor, thinkers and feelers, men and women. They all will testify that more than any single thing in their lives, Jesus Christ has changed them. That's 
the reality of Christ. As Tommy took a poll, you didn't realize you were participating in a poll, but he took a poll. Who has called and he has answered? I'm pretty sure when you raised your hand, should you have raised your hand, which was most of you, that the scenario you were thinking was not a scenario of inconsequential nature. That the particular scenario you were envisioning that you called and he answered was of such import that your life was impacted. So all of you know the reality of Christ. As Lee Strobel was described, and that, that particular paragraph was at the very end of his book, which in a sense, after having gone through all the different categories of evidence, he basically realized that the final confirmation of all the evidence that he'd brought forth was this, which is God's impact in changing men and women. That's the reality of Christ. In your home, actually, I'm going to go in, back to Acts chapter 2, move a few verses up. In verse, chapter 2, verse 41, it says this, Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. And I underline the word fellowship. Well, in addition to doctrine, but fellowship is particularly what I feel God is putting his finger on. As I was preparing just this message, I came to a point last night and I just felt God's finger like on this word and I didn't understand what I was supposed to do with it per se, but I just felt his finger was on this word. So this morning... I kind of rejigged this thing to try and understand and grab hold of God. What are you trying to say? This is what I believe God is wanting to highlight with, as regards to fellowship. Because if you live in this culture, which you do, well, it, now if you drive from two states over, this may not be true for your culture. But in the northern Virginia, and I'll include Maryland, in this area, you know, fellowship, it's not what we do well. It's not an emphasis. It's not really a value. It's like the opposite. You know, there's a facade, right, that cloaks all the busyness such that we don't have, quote-unquote, availability to actually engage in fellowship. It's not, I'm not blaming him. I'm just telling you what the culture is like. I've been here for 20-some years. I think I have a voice that can give an opinion on that. So if I were to now ask you a question, because there are some practical implications of all of this. Remember, we talked about the word simplicity, which is singleness, single-mindedness. And if I were to ask you a question, what grows simplicity in your home? I just want you to keep that question in your mind. What grows simplicity in your home? Single-mindedness. The parable of the sower, which God, Jesus, 
make sure we didn't want to miss the point, so he actually interpreted the parable, and the seeds that fell around, this, around the thorns was choked because the seeds, the, the thorns grew up, in a sense, represents the cares of this world. So Jesus, as head of your home, has a singular, singular purpose that he desires for your home as the head, and yet now the game is, more than a game, of course, is how do we preserve God's intention in our homes with this battle we face, with this infinite set of distractions that are always wanting to vie for our attention, representing unreality and not the reality of Christ. And this is what I felt I wanted to encourage each of you in your homes to be open to the notion of fellowship, and I'm going to give you the reason why. And fellowship looks very different, of course, as different as each of the homes that are represented. But left to your own devices, left to you in isolation, the trend of where you're going to find yourself in is that the, what may have started off in singleness and single-mindedness and purpose is going to get diluted. Left to yourself. One of the ways that you, in a sense, put a damper on that inevitable process, it's a slippery slope, is with people. Being around like-minded people that experience the ongoing miraculous impact of encountering Jesus Christ in their lives will help preserve you. And I trust you can just accept that notion and now what to do about it that's in your court. But I particularly feel that in the season, and see, I don't know what's down the road. Three months, let alone three years. Could I have a prediction and opinion? Yes, like everybody, I do. But I cannot tell you what that is. All I know, and I'm trying to be as obedient as I can to it, is that God is putting his finger on this word fellowship. And all I can do is to encourage you to be open to what that looks like in your home. Because those that are in authority of their home, you get to decide, as you always have and you always will, what you choose to get involved in. It's fellowship. I trust. There is something unique about just being bound to people of like mind. I cannot be so arrogant to say that I will be on my A game every day of the week. And there's sometimes that I just don't have the right perspective from the eyes of eternity. And sometimes just being around people that are carrying that in the midst of what is oftentimes trials and tribulations in their personal lives is, a, is an enabler for me to get recentered on what is real versus being preoccupied with the distractions of unreality. And that is my encouragement to you. Actually, can we have the worship team come up? We are going to sing a song. But... Fellowship may not even be natural to you. Fellowship may be something that 
is too costly for you. All these are potentially true. My best understanding of this is that there is a simplicity of just being together that helps you properly get centered in your perspective. We all like the idea of receiving counsel. Oh, if I don't know what to do, we'll get some counsel. That's for a known problem. But what is also typically true when we just go through our daily lives, as we hit the hiccups and the trials and the tribulations of life, we have an annoying habit, or at least I do, of getting uber-focused on that to the exclusion of the real. It's there to get my attention. I've got to deal with it. But to be preoccupied with it sometimes is not as helpful. So if you would, would you just stand? We're going to worship. We're going to, I'd love you to stand for worship. I don't have all the answers, but I do feel God saying to, he's highlighting this issue of fellowship. And I'm just trusting that as you just go about your lives apart from our Sundays, that there will be a reality to it. I'm asking myself these questions. I'm asking myself these questions. And so if you don't mind, would you just close your eyes? We're just going to thank God for this day. Lord Jesus, I thank you for what you're doing in our midst in the context of Free Life Church. No man can lay claim to any of it. It is solely and entirely upon your shoulders of what you have done. And you receive the glory for that. And at the same time, you are so intensely interested in what goes on in individual households and homes and you desire as the core of what I believe is you desire to continue to build strength there. Strength, security, wholeness, and have peace rest. And you are the head of each home. And I just trust in you that you will enable as you speak to work this out in each of our households in all the ways that you desire. But I say thank you, O Lord, because you are good. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord.